2: in our 16th year is Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. We have an exciting show lined up for you this evening. William Jose and I will be speaking with Indiana University Maurer School of Law, Harry T. Ice Faculty Fellow, Professor Luis Fuentes Rohr, on a variety of current event issues. But leading off, I am joined by bringing on contributor Vernon Williams. Vernon is celebrating his 40th year as a playwright. From his first work, Whatever Happened to Blackness in 1980, that was staged by the Gary Creative Theater Ensemble. Uh, He's written, produced, or directed numerous productions, including Sonnets for My Sisters, Plan for Keeps, A Woman's Place, True Colors, The Divine Nine, and The Price of Progress. The Indiana Avenue IUPUI Story, his most recent play, Being Black, premiered October 2019 at Onyx Fest, Indianapolis. Vernon is here to take part in a conversation with Indianapolis native and renowned actor, choreographer, and director, Ansley Valentine. Ansley is credited with producing powerful Indiana-based projects, such as recently directing a local youth theater group in the production of John Brown's Body, and that was circa 1953, a play based on the 1923 poem about the radical abolitionist who was hanged. Ansley is a product of the civic community theater movement that was in turn shaped by the black arts movement. His lineage and history are strongly tied to theater practices that create and support social justice. And he is in the center of a very white supremacist Tradition of Theater Practices and Higher Education. He also received his MFA at IU. He is currently directing a Tony-nominated actress in an online play. Vernon and Ansley, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're so glad to, to have you both on. And I tell you, um, you both have done remarkable things. And Ansley, you know, I was just reading up on, on your particular project that you're working with, again, is stated here, a Tony-nominated actress. You have to do a couple things. One, you have to tell us who this Tony-nominated actress is and uh, tell us about this production, Big Breath.
1: Well, sure. The, the Tony-nominated actress is Elizabeth Stanley, who is uh, also an IU alum, uh, and it's produced by the Alleyway Theater in Buffalo, uh, which is currently being run by Chris Handley, who's also an IU alum. And the uh, the play was written by uh, Elizabeth Jalen, who's a San Francisco-based playwright. Uh, I actually had worked with uh, Elizabeth when I was a student at IU 20 years ago, and uh, we've kept in touch, but this was the first time that we've actually worked together professionally. So it was, uh, it, it was a great uh, opportunity for me to just to reconnect with a, a good old friend and, and make, make some theater about what's going on in the world right now.
2: You know, I I looked at sort of the the um, uh, the description of this particular uh, endeavor, and I tell you, in this sort of new abnormal, we call uh, the COVID nineteen what a timely play. If you want to give us a little bit about the background and what the focus is in this particular online uh, adaptation, uh, we, we'd appreciate that.
1: Sure. Uh, the uh, the play is uh, about a woman who has been inside of her apartment for 11 weeks and she basically starts to talk to herself. So we, we hear her, uh, her inner voices talking to her as she's trying to process whether she should go out uh, and uh, you know, like what that might mean for her, for her mental health and well-being. And outside of her apartment are, are protests going on. Uh, which comes out sort of later in the story and whether she should go out and and join the protest. So it's, uh, uh, and, you know, the focus, obviously the title is Big Breath. So we come down to, we just need to, to breathe. Uh, And it's, uh, it's actually really a a fascinating piece. I I think it's, it really asks a lot of questions that, that we've all been sort of processing being stuck inside with, uh, with COVID-19. And, and uh, I think, as for many people, you know, it's become a, a time for self-reflection or, or introspection, uh, and you start to ask yourself questions that maybe you haven't had time to ask because you were so busy going from place to place and thing to thing.
2: It seems uh, as if uh, the, the actress here is not able to affirm many outside relationships but has to go within. To sort of center herself, balance herself, uh, keep her sanity, if you will, for eleven weeks. I know after eleven hours, I might start talking to myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of you know that that's really the center of the story. Uh, and then you know she 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 does come to some resolution, but I I think you know the playwright is is asking all of us of uh, to just think. Well, what what do we have inside of us, or uh, you know what what voices do we have that will help
2: us get through? Vernon, if you want to chime in, feel free.
0: Well, it sounds like a very stimulating plot. Uh, What are some of the challenges of preparing a production uh, for online production as opposed to on stage? What are some of the unique challenges?
1: Oh, well, certainly for this play, uh, we had to figure out how we were going to uh, film it. Uh, You know, I'm here in Bloomington. Uh, She's in New York. Our playwright was in San Francisco. and so we we ended up deciding to get some uh, a green screen that she could have in her apartment and uh, we worked with a video editor who's in chicago so we re- recorded we did a, a couple of days of, of recording and tried to come up with how how best to do it and it could be put together mm-hmm. uh, it, it it was a it was certainly a process it's not not like making your normal normal play but you know having said that i think it was also a great opportunity because we could do things that uh, you wouldn't normally do in a in a theatrical
0: production. And to follow up on that, uh, are there some elements in this method of production that you think you would carry over even after the uh, uh, pandemic uh, because it works so well or contributes to the overall product in, in the end?
1: Uh, absolutely. It, you know, I, I think for me, the the bonus of the pandemic is it's given uh, an opportunity to work with people and do kinds of work that you could never do before. Uh, You you know, I I feel like, you know, I I have connected with a lot of artists of color across the country uh, on projects that, you know, before you, you wouldn't have because you weren't in the same place or you didn't have the resources to get people together. Now, when it's just a matter of, well, you go to your living room and turn on the computer uh, and we can get together and, and work on a project or do something, it's, it's, it's incredible.
0: What about your background or your education or your experience do you think qualified you to step into this particular unique situation with a degree of confidence? Oh, well,
1: you know, I, I am a, primarily a theater director, but I also studied film. So, you know, for me, it's a, a great marriage of the two uh, mm-hmm. and that usually they're, they're quite separate. Uh, and I, I think the, the exciting thing for me is trying to figure out, well, what's this, what's this new normal? Uh, you know, what is this new way of, of doing things? And how can, uh, you know, how can I use my background or training and, and think about making some practice or, or making some rules of the road, if you will, that other people could use as they're trying to navigate this space.
2: You know, as I look at uh, what you're tackling right now, I, I think of most plays as being sort of a, reven- a revenue-generating enterprise. Um, and when I see online play, I'm thinking, well, that's got to be a challenge, or there's a lot of creativity needed to try to generate uh, some income uh, to to sort of augment all the other expenses that are are, are that are going on. Um, how do you do that? Will you make it sort of pay-per-view, or or has that, or you do grants? Has it already been underwritten, so you don't, there's no need to concern yourself with that, or or what do you do?
1: Oh, sure. Well, for this production, uh, it, it was pay-per-view, so you would buy a buy a ticket, and then you could stream it, uh, you know, at, at your at your will. But I think you're right. I think the the biggest challenge for for folks and groups going forward is the the financial model. Um, you know, we, we in this country have, have not continued to support the arts, uh, you know, with grants and that type of thing the way that it used to be. And so more and more theaters have relied on their, their ticket income. And when you're in a place of, wow, we can't even have anybody in our space, uh, it, it does become challenging to say, how do you, how do you generate enough money to, to pay people uh, and pay them a, a living wage to create work and share share it with the community.
2: Well, as you are are no doubt a pioneer, your work will serve to inspire others, and they'll look back on these days and say, "Wow, you know, it was the Valentines of the world that uh, came up with this creative idea uh, to do this thing online." And and also, I will note that you are a believer in supporting social justice causes, and in this particular. Uh, production, you did mention that in the background, not only is there silence and she's communing with herself, but then she hears protests outside, which probably takes it to a place of self-examination. And uh, can you talk about other works that you've been involved with that sort of support so, uh, social justice? And I'm going to ask Vernon the same question, because I sort of uh, read just, just a portion of the many creative things that he's put together. But I think you two are sort of on the same page when it comes to... Um, Uh, forward thought and progressive thought so how does this sort of support your desire to be um, to be socially aware and to to make sure everyone else is resonating with some good social justice well I think in in this play
1: it's uh you know it asks that that question for the audience of uh like how how do you really feel about what's going on uh, you know, the character, uh, as we've portrayed her, is a, a Caucasian woman. And there's there's a, a, a question that she's asking herself of, you know, I, I want to go out, but a, am I afraid? Am I afraid of what's going on out there? Or am I afraid of the people who are out protesting? Uh, so that was something that we explored in our conversation in preparing this play. But I, I think as another example, I, I, have another, I have a play that I wrote uh, that's going to be premiering in December also online is being produced by Buffalo State College. It's called Mother C. Uh, and it's uh, suggested by Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage and Her Children. But we set it in, uh, in this production, it's set in Chicago or set in Buffalo. But when I wrote it, it was set in Chicago and uh, with a Black mother with with three children uh, living on the street and trying to figure out how to make a living when, uh, you know, social uprest, Uh, unrest and uprisings happen and they shut down part of the power grid in Chicago, in Bronzeville. Uh, So I wrote this um, actually a a couple of years ago uh, and we had some references to Trump and that sort of thing in there. And people said, oh, you really should take that out. That's really not possible. And here we are, uh, you know, a couple of years later and a lot of the things that I wrote in the play as quote fiction have actually come to pass. So, while the, the, the folks in Buffalo were working on this production, you know, we decided to, to add more explicit references to Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And there's a whole section that talks about Black women who have suffered uh, violence or, or suffered under uh, police violence. Uh, and it's taken on, I think, a completely different resonance because it's really asking uh, a lot of the same kinds of questions. What can you do? What have you done? What's your place uh, in all of this? Uh, you know, why is it that uh, we expect other people to take up the work? And what is it that, that one person can do? Um, you know, so I, I try to put those things in the work that I'm doing to ask the questions because I think watching a play or seeing something artistic allows people to uh, enter into a conversation with others or with themselves, that doesn't have to be confrontational, uh, but it does, you know, push them to say, "Well, what what are you doing for yourself?"
2: Uh, one more follow-up, and then I'm going to ask Vernon to comment on on this particular topic, and then to bring into uh, the conversation some of your work and touching on some of those social justice uh, issues, and and for a point of. Uh, Uh, Reference, we've gone 17 minutes before mentioning and uttering number 45. So, uh, one day we'll go a whole hour without mentioning 45, but we have. Um, Is (laughs) there If he lets it go. (laughs) Um, I I see that in our our intro for you, we stated that you're at the center of a very white supremacist tradition of theater practices and higher education. Please explain that, and, and what what is that reality all about? Uh,
1: well, sure. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm on the faculty at at IU, and uh, you know, I think we have a we have a canon of knowledge that that we're we're as faculty are are expected to uh, impart on our students. Uh, yet, uh, I still I, I feel like I still need to figure out ways to navigate to you know open them up to other possibilities. Or to ask uh, other questions, uh, you know, and, and you, you know perhaps I, I feel a particular responsibility when I when I actually I do have students of color in, in my classes, uh, because you know often you know like they're looking for like well how do I how do I do this uh, if I'm going to go into this profession how how am I going to do this and what are the you know how, what are the ways that I, I need to to uh, you know make sure that my voice is heard. And I, I can't, you know, I honestly can't say that I have all the answers. Uh, you know, I, I think some of my students are, are certainly way more progressive than I am. But I I have always, I have always felt a responsibility to challenge, uh, you know, to know what is canon or to know, like, oh, here are the rules that people op- are operating by. But by the same token, challenge that and say, you know, like, here's a way to, to deconstruct that. Uh, and and then try to pass that knowledge on, on to my students as well.
2: Vernon, uh, did you have a point that you wanted to chime in? My request again is that um, you and I did collaborate on one of your uh, projects, and uh, that being True Colors. And uh, you know, we we did talk about Trumpism to a degree. We didn't get far into it. We don't have time in the show to get far into it, but when President Obama was reelected, I, I believe, uh, that sparked an interest on the part of Vernon to to write a play about True Colors. And if you could talk a little well, bit about that.
0: True Colors um, basically explored America's reaction to having a, a, a black man elected president. And it went into households that represented a cross section uh, there was a white middle-class uh, couple, upper-middle-class couple. couple. Uh, the gentleman's very conservative. The wife actually worked with the campaign. Then there was um, uh, an Alabama rural couple, um, and, and they were shocked, saddened, disheartened, uh, fearful, uh, and all of the other emotions that you might imagine. Then there was um, uh, old school with his uh, granddaughter, and she was excited. He was overwhelmed because he never thought he'd live to see that day, but it was a, a, um, a conglomeration of emotions reacting to uh, the election of the first uh, black president. Um, the play that I most recently did though, dealing with social justice is called Being Black. Um, it basically is a, a set of vignettes that delve into various aspects of the black experience. Uh, It starts out with the, on the day of uh, the police murder in Minnesota and it progressive and the conversation uh, follows that mindset and the experiences that different people have experienced uh, in terms of just being black. And um, uh, it it progresses through uh, the various, uh, like there's a scene with a brother who was in a Starbucks who had a confrontation a a businessman as he's preparing for a presentation. And now he's got to deal with police uh, because there's an incident there. There's another one where a brother on an elevator at a conference uh, is is confronted with um, a racist woman who steps onto the elevator and uh, the N word is explored. So there's a lot of elements explored, but being black basically looks at some of the perspectives of, um, of our existence in this country in this day and age. And we don't mention uh, the, the T word one time in the entire two hour play.
2: Well, I, I noticed that you both um, are based out of Indianapolis right now. And- um, And I'm glad you acquainted us. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. And um, one thing I, I've noticed that Vernon, you've been active with the Onyx Fest up in Indianapolis and uh, Dr. Valentine, are you familiar with the Onyx Fest in Indianapolis as well?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, a- absolutely.
2: Um, one of the things that I've always enjoyed is, is to watch the reaction of the viewer and a lot of these productions. And if, if someone leaves the same, then yeah, you failed. Because mm-hmm. these are visual, these are impactful, they're emotional. Yeah, and they not only resonate, but they strike a chord that perhaps you didn't want struck that night. Yeah, and usually you can get disturbed to the point of questioning, "No, I don't believe that way, or I'm not that way." But you know, a good production will transform, will captivate, and will carry the viewer um, wherever the creator wishes to carry them. And so, um, when when I see that you are really in support of social justice. Where do we go now in a a post 45 era? I mean, people think that 46 is gonna correct everything overnight and I I don't think that concept's gonna go away for a while.
0: Well, my my view is um, I I don't even give um, the acknowledgement of an error to 45. Um, he, He was a blunder, he was a mistake. Um, in, in the experience of our republic and our society, but he was endemic of a larger problem uh, right. that it, that's existed forever and that's going to exist after he's gone. Uh, he just simply was bolder than most people in his position in terms of articulating the most extreme elements of um, bigory, bigotry and misogynist, uh, mis- being a misogynist and a xenophobe and um, whereas the, the language was subtle in some of um, uh, the previ- his, his predecessors and even some of his contemporaries, he just snatched the hood off, you know, right. um, basically. So our challenge, in my opinion, uh, becomes no less with the new administration. It may be different, but no less. Um, it, it's been going on since 1619, um, uh, so it certainly wouldn't end in in, in 2021. Um, but but you know, we 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 adapt, we um, uh, grow, we we find those things that advance our situation. Um, no, we're not in the promised land, but um, but we have so many resourceful, intelligent um um resilient and and dedicated uh people people from all scopes of life that you just feel good about moving forward
2: you know gentlemen as we sort of come to the end of this conversation um time has gone too quickly and hence as always my famous follow up is uh, we want to invite you back and um one of the things that two things i want to say in parting and i want to give you the last word dr valentine um, Vernon uh, tell us about the onyx fest what went on this year and what's planned for next year and both of you because you're in sort of uh, these seats of uh, control and, and creativity might you tackle something that pertains to 1619 you mentioned it I was thinking about it before and then you mentioned it but we cannot ignore the fact that 400 year 401 years ago mm-hmm. uh, we set foot on this in this on this land uh, but is
0: someone going to tackle that? And I know someone wrote a book, but can someone tackle that? Well, it, real briefly about Onyx Fest, um, this next 2021 will be my second year as director. And um, we solicit uh, new plays by uh, Black playwrights um, to showcase during an event that's gonna be in October. And we are beginning to accept plays as of December. And um, it's of course addresses the lack of diversity in Indiana theater. It's the first and the only um, ongoing festival that focuses exclusively on the works of black playwrights. So we're excited about that. Um, My quick response to the 1619 is, I think that that's a story that's that's told in multiple layers and uh, from a lot of perspectives. I don't think there's one way to talk about it. I think that you don't even have to it doesn't even have to be a period piece because there's so many elements of 1619 that are, that are in 2021, that, that we don't have to strain to make the connection of why it's important to let that concern resound and to deal with, with that issue um, um, with some degree of seriousness. So um, you, can, you can do a historical piece, but I think that, um, that much of it is so present today that uh, when you deal with things that enhance the, our children's future, then you deal with, with something that honors the ancestors.
2: Dr. Valentine.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it, but now that you've raised the, the question and you know Vern has talked about it so eloquently, I'm like, oh, okay, I think now I'm I'm gonna start percolating on that. <laughs>
2: Right, well, gentlemen, as I said, time is, is sometimes our enemy, but it was time well spent. Uh, and, we, and we are serious when we say we want to do this again. Uh, we definitely want to explore more issues with you both. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Valentine, for accommodating us and Vernon as well. We want to thank renowned Indianapolis-based teacher, actor, choreographer, and director, Ansley Valentine, and bringing on contributor, Vernon Williams, who is also a writer, producer, and director and closely aligned with onyx fest of indianapolis for joining us this evening for a conversation of the black influences on the theatrical arts and also dr valentine's work uh, with big breath an online uh, play and, doc- and dr valentine if we wish to view or wish to take part in that what do we do
1: well we uh we ended uh on uh on the 22nd but i think if elizabeth stanley wins the tony award they will We'll find a way to, to bring it back, but people can check it out at alleyway.com.
2: Excellent, and uh, I want to thank you both for joining us. And And with that, we bid you both a farewell. Thank you. thank you. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is on at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is on at wfhb.org. At the top of the hour, I shared that Bring It On anchor William Jose and I were looking forward to speaking with Professor Luis Fuentes Rohrer, the Harry T. Ice Faculty Fellow at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Professor Fuentes Rohrer, he teaches and writes in the areas of civil rights and legal history with a particular emphasis on constitutional law and the Reconstruction era.
3: His scholarship focuses on the intersection of race and democratic theory as reflected in the law of democracy in general and the Voting Rights Act in particular. He is interested in the way that institutions and especially courts are asked to craft and implement the ground rules of American politics. He received a JD and a PhD from the University of Michigan and an LLM from Georgetown. He joined the IU faculty in 2002.
2: And from that uh, brief introduction, you can see why we wanted him on tonight. Some of the topics we want to cover with Dr. Fuentes Rohr include this year's never-ending presidential election, the long-term impact from the numerous constitutional crises that we as a nation have worked hard to avert. And looking forward, how can our divided nation heal? And does history hold examples that can help us? Now, with that, Dr. Luis Fuentes-Roar, welcome to Bring It On.
4: Thank you both for having me. I'm, I'm deeply honored to be your guest tonight. I really look forward to our conversation.
2: Well, we are deeply honored to have you. We are a nation a people. It's like we're popping popcorn, sitting back, watching history being played out in front of us, and it's like I, we don't have a fast-forward button, so we just have to sit patiently, but perhaps you can help us out. Uh, speaking and alluding to the current presidential election debacle uh, only from the standpoint of one side accepting the result and conceding. Uh, What does history say about all this? History says
4: that this has never happened before. Usually I mean there's been times when after the election, after the first night election night on Tuesday, there have been times when We've waited, but not like this, meaning it's pretty clear who won. Like in the past when we have waited is because it's been, and of course, everybody thinks about the 2000 election, which led to Bush versus Gore. And that election, you may recall, came down to one state Mm -hmm. and it came down to under a thousand votes from five to 700 and some votes out of millions cast. So that election basically was a tie. Whoever won Florida won the whole thing. And of course, it was not clear who had won Florida. So it took time to figure that out and doing recounts and going to court and all of that. There've been elections before that one. People always talk about the election of 1876, also a pretty close election where we had to go to a commission to sort through and sort out who had won. This one is not those because you might've seen today when, the the news are basically, now that we know more than we knew a week or two ago, this was not a close election. We thought it was. And that's because, because of the mail voting aspect to it. You know, COVID led so many people to vote absentee through mail voting that what we knew the night of the election is not what we came to know days after. But once all the votes, well, we haven't finished yet. We still have some to count. New York is still coming in but knowing what we know today two weeks after actually more than that almost three it's pretty clear this was not close so when you ask me have we seen this before the answer is no we've never seen this before that a loser of a national presidential election refuses to concede because they dispute that which is clear to the rest of the world
3: Luis, I first heard you speak at the uh, Defending Democracy event at IU and I came back and told Clarence in, you know, we got to bring this guy on and and talk to him and let him share some of his story. You are a native of Puerto Rico and from our conversations, I understand you come from humble beginnings, but uh, as I talk to you and read your bio, I, I realize that you have a pretty broad wingspan. I mean, you, you're just into so much. But I want to go back to uh, more to the beginning uh, and, and some of your activities uh, locally. So what what do you want us to know about yourself and then uh, some of the things that you're involved in in Bloomington at the local level? And then after that, we can talk about some more, more of the national issues.
4: Yes, um, for sure. So I, I was born, as you said, born and raised in San Juan about 14, I was about 14 years old when I came to the US. And I came to learn English. I didn't speak a lot of English um, growing up. We do have English classes in Puerto Rico, but it's kind of like kids here in the US learning Spanish or some other languages in school. It's it's really not the same. And so I came and it was basically an immigrant experience. It was really hard. Um, It was hard to getting along the culture, the language, The climate, I'll never forget the first time I saw snow. That lasted one time, trust me. The second time it got old real fast. And this has been old for a long time. And so I that was now 1986 when I came and I went to, as you read so kindly, I went to the University of Michigan and I stayed and I met my wife. And so I, I landed in Bloomington. I mean, it was a and here's the thing I tell my students that they don't understand. I am not a believer in merit. I believe in hard work. holy. I, I think hard work is important, and I don't believe. I mean some people get ahead through hard work, and we can name names if you want, nationally. We've met some of them the last four years. You know you got to get lucky. But surely this idea of merit, I see it too often. Merit is people use it to disguise that which happens to them, you know privilege or 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 getting handouts and so on, so that at the end of the day, I think about me coming to this country, and I think about what I went through, and with so many people, especially, you know, people of color, people who don't have others in front of them, helping them, telling them what the path is, that was me, so I made, I tell anybody who listened, I made more mistakes than you'll ever know, and I'll be happy to share them, obviously, and so at the end of the day, I'm here randomly, I kid you not, I, you hear my, my, you, you people see my path and they read about my degrees but anybody can do that that's just hard work but in reference to getting places i i kid you not it's it's random without others charting a path for you and so i i live my life now and you mentioned bloomington and what i do in bloomington i spend most of my time trying to help other people do and get things that they should get things they, they deserve but don't get. So I, I, for example, I am a member of the Latino and Hispanic Commission for the city of Bloomington. I am a member of El Centro Comunal Latino also here in Bloomington. I am a member of the Bloomington Public Safety Board. Uh, at IU, I, I mentor students I, I, as formally through organizations. I am a member of the Latino Faculty and Staff Council which tries to help people, Latinos and otherwise, in the campus a as you heard before which jarring as it sounds when you first hear it but right, this is a white campus unquestionably that is not to be debated you walk into the law school which is partly i'll stop here but you know partly for me as a puerto rican man in bloomington in a, in a world like this one every time i walk out of my house i i feel other unquestionably and you know, I am privileged to be sure I have degrees. I have a job. I, but at the end of the day, I walk into my job and, and, you know, people treat sometimes, believe it or not, people, some people treat me just like that. Like I am the other, I I am. Why am I here? I've been asked, why are you here? And they say it jokingly, but you wonder always, why do you joke like that with other people? Why are you joking like that with me? So in the end, I, I have a lot of privilege. I will not lie about that, I, that's undeniable. But I tell you, I use it to try to help other people because there's a lot to be done in this world. Um, somebody's gotta do it. And I'm not pretending I do it myself, I do what I can. And I'm not the only one, but I sure try.
2: You know, I, I think of uh, where we are again as a country, we mentioned earlier that there's a divide that's been created. And I also think uh, you said that you're from San Juan, um, and Puerto Rico has not been treated very very well in the last four years. And I can think of several situations where um, assistance has, was withheld because of either perceived personality clashes between our president and perhaps the mayor uh, uh, in one city and locale in, in Puerto Rico. We got through that, we're getting through that and. A lot of people are placing hope in the next administration. Uh, But but yet there's still some unfinished business with this uh, recent election. And I kind of jokingly said the never ending presidential election. As of this recording date, Michigan has finally certified uh, the vote count in that state with one abstention. So it was 3-0 with one abstention. And then the whole practice of inviting legislators out to the White House from the state in question to just give them a tour of the White House, I guess is that that's all that took place. But no, 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 we're not that blind. We know what went on. What is your thought about that? I mean, were laws transgressed? I know ethics law, ethics were, but were, were laws transgressed and your thoughts on that?
4: Well, unquestionably that goes to what I said before, we are in uncharted territory. This is something we haven't seen before. And you know, it, it, I used to think four years ago that our institutions are stronger than any one president, which is really what holds any country together. The idea that, that institutions hold and they have a history and they have norms that hold them together so that, so that they last through time. Here comes one president and he's tested so many of those norms in such incredibly difficult ways and here's just one more moment. Even on the way out, he's testing them again. And so when you say it's it illegal, it's it's not something we do. I'm gonna get to the legal point in a second. You know the, the the norm is once you lose graciously, you cede power. And here's a, an interesting story I would tell my students. And now I have a second example, which I trust me, I did not want it, but here I have it. Think about. Al Gore in the year 2000, when your Supreme Court ruled against him in a very complex yet nebulous way, meaning justices basically flipped in what they believed prior to the case Bush versus Gore. So those who believed in strong national power suddenly started to believe in the power of, federal, of state courts to do more, and the states should be the ones deciding things. Those who believed in states doing more things immediately suddenly flipped to the national government doing more. So the nationalists and the federalists basically flipped, the conservatives flipped and there we got Bush versus Gore and Al Gore lost. Well, here's what's crazy to me. This was the example then. Go read, if you do one thing, go read Al Gore's concession speech. It is a, a, an incredible act of, of selflessness. At least it is to me. The idea he tells you, I don't agree with the court. I think they are wrong, and yet, I concede. It's over. We have to just go on and unite. It's, that is incredible, and it's happened many times before. Go read H- George H.W. Bush's, it's been in the news. The way he conceded to Bill Clinton back in 92, same story, said, I don't agree with you, but I lost. And I move along, and now for the good of the country, we must, I want to help you move our country forward any way I can, please call on me. And then here we are this year. I tell you, people would say this might happen. It was still hard to believe this might happen. The idea that a sitting president would call a local board of certification at a state level to try to influence a vote yeah that doesn't seem you call it is it illegal yeah there's federal law that says you can't do that now that's a different question from saying do you think anything will happen to him to the president probably not it's unseemly it's unprecedented as governor christie called it in the news shows on sunday it's embarrassing to the to the world to you know i have a 16 year old who's involved in for the first time in politics he's paying attention he's listening he's interested 538 is it's like where he goes to get news. How do you explain to him? uh, This is the first one, first election. We know who won. It was not close. And here's a president behaving in ways. Presidents are not supposed to behave. And 47 million people might agree. That's the one that kills me. 47 million people might agree with him. Although that's probably too high of a number to be fair. That more than one of those 47 million agree with him that's when I think we're in trouble, by the way.
2: I think because this was the highest um, election total uh, of people participating, that number was actually 74 million. And I mean, Biden, I'm that you're correct. I mean, that, that's, and then Biden that's getting 80 million. That's correct. Uh, the the um, engagement was record charting I'm, for right. our country, for our country. And, and I know in some countries, elections are held over a series of days and and just i think within my recent memory people that got in line could stay in line to vote even after the uh, polls closed you know you have people that certify that you were in line by seven or whatever time but but this was unprecedented and the behavior of inviting state legislators talking with those who had to uh tally votes uh, who were the elected officials in charge of all that and then the other thing too now that the loose talk about calling the electors to all of a sudden you know swap some that may be leaning in your direction now now that right there that's not American no matter how you cut and slice it and your thought on that and then I like to defer to William
4: yeah that you know we have this thing called faithless electors it's happened in the past where electoral college voters switch from the candidate they pledged to support to a different candidate. It's never been done in this way. I mean, this is open lobbying in a way that has the electoral college rule against the will of of the clear will. Let's be clear about that. This is, again, it's not a close election in the end, it, we thought it was, but it, it turned out not to be, so that the the way that it's become win at any cost, irrespective of voting, irrespective of the norms that came before that that exist in place, irrespective of anything, that's the part that I am concerned about. That is a point that, that makes me wonder, how do we move forward? Right? In the end, what happens? So. You have a president who's being a, a, a president-elect i should say who's being de- delegitimized at every step and you know if you think about it all we have at the end of the day why do people listen to the rulers because they believe in them because they believe in the rule of law they believe in institutions they believe right that's the point of the, the al gore story vice president gore the idea that he believed in elections, in open and free elections. He believed, even though he disagreed, he believed in the Supreme Court as an institution, which meant even though he disagreed with them. And I think he was right about that, by the way. I thought the Supreme Court was wrong, but that's that was not the point then, that is not the point now. And that's not even, this election close to that one. Let me be clear yet again, this is not, it, call it un-American, I mean, call it undemocratic. democratic call it any bad word you can think of, stick it in there it is that and more and yet that many people are willing which is a problem with our country today so many people are willing to 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 keep going so many people in the republican party i'm sure you're seeing the national committee is on board with the attacks we've seen in the last three weeks it is reprehensible unquestionably
3: so that's why there is no more republican party it's a cult now a trump cult but uh we, we've seen 30 plus court decisions go against uh, Donald Trump's legal team but on the other hand Mitch McConnell has ran through about 220 federal judges but the, the one authority that Donald Trump seems to respect so far has been federal court decisions but I guess unless you know exactly how the federal court system wor- works and what that makeup is. Um, people wonder, is it reasonable to be concerned that some of those Trump-loving right-wing conservative judges that McConnell ran through could be involved in one of these decisions that Donald Trump is bringing to the courts and to do his bidding? It,
4: no. Again, I say that cautiously only in the sense that I never thought we would be sitting here talking about this today. So that yeah. right, we are, these are in many ways uncharted waters. What you saw out of Michigan today, for example, out of the Board of Certification in, in the state of Michigan, that was a pro forma meeting. All they had to do was say the 83 counties in Michigan sent us their votes, read the sheet of paper and certify it. There was nothing there, and yet, right, there was talk that they would, in fact, one of them abstained, but really, he wanted to vote against it. But the one lawyer who was a lawyer for the state house of representatives, the Republican House, he basically said, as a lawyer, the law doesn't allow us to do anything, so there's nothing for us to do, which is what everybody had said up to that moment, and yet you had one person still willing to to. Not certify the count. That said, to your specific question, do I think that you're right, Trump was nominated and McConnell has confirmed many lawyers many judges to the Federal Circuit? That said, the law is pretty clear here. And so usually we we can get in trouble or not. We usually judges have more room when laws are less clear than this, which is my way of saying. Few people today, myself included, I yet to find one person other than Donald Trump himself, who would say, let's go to the Supreme Court, I will win there. In fact, my point to you would be the Supreme Court, if it cares about its institutional standing and, and, and its future as a court. And here's the thing. Chief Justice Roberts knows exactly what I'm about to say. They know they want no part of this. You know, I, I wonder. Here's what I mean. I wonder. The, the recent justices, Kavanaugh and Barrett and Gorsuch, they're Trump judges, essentially, meaning right, they they were nominated by Trump, confirmed by a Republican Senate. Barrett in particular, I wonder about because of the way that her nomination came about to, you know like a month or so before the next election in reference to what happened before. Right, they, they're already on perilous ground, the Supreme Court. So that the only thing the court has, if you think about it, is that people like Al Gore say, "Look, I disagree, but I comply." Imagine if the people started saying, "Why should we listen to you? You're a Trump court, right?" So, th- and they know that. I mean, I have—if we had have more time—I give you lots of examples of moments in history when that has happened. So, is the court wanting any part of this? The answer is clearly no. That there's no question about that. Will they? Will some of them do it? Some of them might want to, but more. The not on the US Supreme Court don't want any part of it. In fact, I'm sure you know the case out of Pennsylvania. That was a George W. Bush Federal Society member judge, like a right of center judge who said, Look, there is nothing here. Either you show me evidence or else there's no case. We don't do this, which is my way of answering your question. I, there's nothing. There's really nothing here. Nothing.
2: To, to the point of uh, Supreme Court's um, and their perceptions and then their actions, uh, you know, lifetime appointment, uh, say what you want, you've been granted a lifetime appointment, all of a sudden you're a little free to think or objectively, I would think. Um, now, now, the notion of stacking the courts, what's your thought on that?
4: Well, I, on the first point, I would tell you, I agree. When, once they get on the court, they they have more freedom to do what they want which actually cuts both ways to me, right? You usually have the, the the middle member, the fifth vote, which used to be Chief Justice Roberts. That member needs to worry about more than just law. And you saw this when you think about the Affordable Care Act, yeah, you know, the Obamacare case. The Chief Justice wrote an opinion that was quirky and, and curious for him. This last term, the Chief Justice also had a few cases where you said, hmm, that is not the same chief justice we had a few years ago, which is my way of saying, right? He he didn't want to tilt too far to the right in a in, in the Trump era, so the court would get too cozy or be seen as too cozy with the president. What happens moving forward, I don't know. But now right, he's not the middle justice anymore. It might be Kavanaugh. Well, you might have seen the Affordable Care Act came in front of the court again, and the questions coming from Kavanaugh. And the Chief Justice seemed to suggest they will uphold the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, one more time. right The court my that's my way of saying the court has to worry about public opinion. They have to worry about norms. They have to worry about things that McConnell and Trump don't have to worry about. That said, so I'm, I'm not as cons- I'm, I'm concerned but not as much as some people. That said, on court packing depends on what people mean by it. Surely, I, I would start by saying, I firmly believe that term limits on the court are a no-brainer. Now, you know, is it 15 years? Is it 18 years? You know, staggered terms. Lots can be done there. In reference of court packing, the idea that, I mean, i put it differently. You say court packing. I say, to my mind, some of those appointments are like Gorsuch. To me, that's an illegitimate appointment. To me. Because that was, remember, that was the one that, that McConnell refused to appoint. As soon as I get a working majority, if I ever do, as a Democrat, I would impeach him, to be honest with you. I would. Barrett? I would not be against doing that either. I have to think about it more. But court packing, to me, simply putting more seats on the court because the court is tilted in a way that it shouldn't be. I mean, you think about, and that goes against my first point, I understand, but this is talking quickly. At the end of the day, you know that a minority of popular votes now holds six supreme court seats presently see that, that doesn't make sense the idea that right if you play the game right if people die randomly at the right time or step down from the court you end up with a court that's not representative of the american public now you may say they're not supposed to be representative maybe that but they're not supposed to be unrepresentative i, I don't know what they're supposed to be but the idea that you could just do what's happened the last three four years and call it legitimate I would that would take a full show to talk about that. I, I agree, but but that to me is not the way it ought to be. So when you say court packing, I would not be against that.
2: The thing, the thing I really hated to see was um, people hoping against hope that that Ruth Bader Ginsburg justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would stay alive long enough. And and I would hope no one, it never gets to that with any position, elected position or appointed position in America. But that woman. She requested that you wait. That's like her one of her last dying wishes. Was hoping and, and just really imploring uh, the powers that be, can you wait until the next president is elected? But what happens, literally hours after the announcement, Mitch McConnell rushes in and President Trump rushes in to, to start weighing in as far as what we need to move forward. and then go back deja vu. Well, what happened when we had a, for all intents and purposes, lame duck president? Uh, and it was, you know, these 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 gallant speeches. And um, I don't even know how to look at, um, uh, well, Graham anymore, because I don't even know this person anymore. Um, but anyway, the hypocrisy, the, the stench rose to high heaven. And so on the question of stacking or packing the court, I, you know, what's the number? three, five, um, some larger than life, or to your point, uh, limited terms. Um, In
4: fact, think about that. If you think about that very quickly, people say, you know, it's nine, we can't pack the court, it's nine. Surely they know that the constitution doesn't prescribe a number. Right. Nine is a norm. That's all it is, it's a norm. We've stopped, you know, back in, funny, reconstruction time, that long ago the interestingly the radical republicans right when when johnson was the president they didn't want to give him seats so they refused to nominate or to confirm his nominee this is andrew johnson racist andrew johnson mind you the analogies are too thick for anything much than maybe we should smile so they took away seats back then this is the 1860s and once he passed away or passed on and came president grant they added seats That being said, think about what's happening here today. McConnell doesn't believe in norms. He doesn't believe in judicial norms. Nobody ever thought not to give a presidential nominee a hearing. I mean, you don't think that way. Well, he did. And he said, let the American public decide. Well, unless I have the right president, then I will not let the American public decide. Meaning, My point in saying that is to say norms don't matter to him. Well, that being said, well, nine is a norm. Nine, 10, 11, 12, 15, 20, pick a number. I mean, that's way too crass. I have better numbers than that. But the point is, let's not pretend nine is some sacred number handed down to us from some old guy as some mount on some stone tablets. That is not what happened. And that's never happened. Which is to say, if I had the chance, oh, for sure, I would appoint more. Oh, yes, unquestionably there you pushed me to it sorry about that
2: right no, no no uh if we have more time we 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 want to explore other topics and to that point as we mentioned earlier in our show we wish to invite you back um Absolutely. and i would say after the inaugural whatever you place, i don't, that I don't believe place, you. you
4: say that to every guest I, but we do we, we, we i, I think the, the William, law of averages William, the law William, of averages is that, in isn't isn't our it? favor
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, well far be it for me to uh to uh, misrepresent to a, to a law professor but uh, we will we will endeavor to get you back after the inaugural after the dust is, well if the dust can settle within the next 2 oh, 3 it has months to settle. it's they got it's settle. got to settle it's got to settle and i am, i will say in wrapping this this part of our conversation up that i am impressed with what we're hearing as far as the cabinet picks by uh President-elect yeah. Biden. I agree, and and I look so forward to see just how impactful uh, Vice President-elect um, uh, Kamala Harris will be, and uh, will she see herself prosecuted a lot of points <laughs> while <Well>, on the hill? <laughs> but uh, I think we have a real good uh, a, a real good future if we just come together as a people. And with that, our thanks to Dr. Luis Fuentes Roar, the Harry T.I.'s faculty fellow at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Thank you for joining us, sir, as we explore some constitutional questions surrounding this year's seemingly never-ending presidential election and some other relevant topics. Well, thank you. Thank you again.
3: Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone with help from WFHB News Department Director Cade Young promotional graphics created by yours truly and our original theme music was created by Jamil fm with additional background tracks by david baker for wfhb i'm william hosea be sure to tune in next monday at 6 p.m for another edition of bring it on right here on your community community radio station wfhb